0: I hope you all appreciate you now see slides up there. I went all out for you this week. <laughs> so good morning. It's uh let's get moving here uh, as there is a lot of really good stuff that we're going to cover this morning. So let me pray. Father God, you alone are good. We give you the praise for allowing us here to meet together this morning and and dig in to learn from your word. Thank you for the power of the gospel, the power of the spirit to come help and lead us, and we thank you for the hearts that you have changed here. We seek to know you better through your word, and we ask that you help guide us there. Give us humble hearts to learn and to seek transformed lives through your spirit, through your word, Thank you for the gospel, the the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Amen. Well, once again, it's a privilege to be with you here this morning. Our little green book, have you all been enjoying it? Yeah, absolutely. Christ-centered devotions in this uh, crazy hustle, time of hustle. Helpful little snippets, insights uh, toward the person of Christ and to help Keep our minds stayed and, and guarded on, on those things, with those things, these truths. And I hope that hour one this morning uh, will be the same as, as Paul is going to encourage us with a, a Christian's focus and, and details as to what that looks like and what that should look like. Turn with me, if you're not already there, you'll see the text up there that we'll be in this morning. Philippians 3, 4-11. through 11. I hope that we get all the way through it as it is uh, very rich. Well, I was, as you turn in there, I was humbled this week uh, as Paul showed me and the Word showed me what I lack, but also he gives much hope here as well. And I need to uh, apologize as I won't be able to address everything here in the text there's, like I said, much there, uh, but we will be going over the main things, as we always do. So I want to read, read along with me in Philippians 3, we'll, we'll read the whole section, starting in verse 1 through 11. Paul says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and boast in Christ, just Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God upon faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Well, on to verse 4, as we continue our in the book verse 4 he says although i myself have confidence might have confidence even in the flesh if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh i far more paul isn't paul just told the philippians not to put confidence in the flesh as that's not what a christian would do but he's not sitting here contradicting himself saying hey you don't do this you don't put confidence in the flesh but but i'm going to i will that's not what paul's saying not at all. Paul is, for argument's sake, putting the Judaizers, he's about to put them to shame, put them in their place, as, as you'll see. What he's saying here essentially is, hey, you who do want to put confidence in the flesh, confidence in fulfilling the law, keeping the law, watch this. Who want to put faith in the law, watch this. Verse 5, follow along. Circumcised on the eighth day, Of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. All but one of these statuses are things that Paul nor anybody else really had control over as no one has control over their own birth. The nation of Israel, God's chosen people, tribe of Benjamin, the most prominent tribe within God's chosen people. He says, as to the law, a Pharisee. We know that he studied under Gamaliel, one of the most influential teachers of the day. That, by way of necessity, makes Paul the best of the best. Not just with the Pentateuch and the Torah, but in the whole rabbinical system is what he's describing here. He's putting these Judaizers to shame one point at a time. And I don't think that we need to strain this too hard. Other than this, that that Paul's life is everything that he had been striving toward, if anyone was trying to claim the law as mastered it, it was Paul. Paul had mastered the road that the Judaizers were trying so desperately hard to travel and force on the Christians. Verse 6, he says, As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. Zeal it was one of the most supreme virtues in the Jewish, the Jewish, uh, the Jewish um, people. It had two sides. It had love and also hate. And what Paul is saying here is, "Hey, you you guys are only proselytizing the Christians here. You're, that's all you're doing. Me, I was I was terrorizing the church. There was no mercy given with me. You guys are weak." if that's what you're trying to do. And to, to be found blameless as to the law, Paul's simply saying that anyone looking at my life on the outside, they couldn't find, they couldn't point out a, a single mistake. Paul was on it, he was the man. And along with everyone else, they all, they all knew it as, as word about him had spread. Verse 7 Moving on, verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. This is a Greek term, gain. It's a Greek term. It's an accounting term. So myself, uh, when it comes to Greek or accounting, I have no claims to, to tell anybody about either one of those. But here we go. Karen, you can correct me if I'm wrong. The term uh, Gain On the T-square, the accounting T-square, where you balance different accounts, On, the, on the, the gain would have been on the positive side. Paul, his whole exhaustive list would have been, he counted and understood them to be on the gain side, the positive side. And that's where we know he would, at a minimum, it would have outweighed his loss column. That's, that's why he can say that he was blameless. Paul had nothing uh, on the loss or liability in his his own mind in that column. And in his balance, it was at a minimum better than you or I or the church or any other Gentile. But isn't that the case of all world religions? When they're broken down their, their asset column versus the liability or their loss column, it's in good standing in their own opinion. in their opinion of what their standard is according to their God, when asked the question, are you a good person? They would oft, often they would answer with an affirmative. Or maybe they'd begin to list out their moral resume, such as Paul was doing. But only Christianity understands that, that our righteousness, our self-righteousness, could never stack up against, against the holy God and the law that He's given us. Our good deeds... When it comes to earning righteousness, it's rubbish. Paul calls it dung, poo, to put it nicely. It is altogether offensive. You and I, on our own merit, are altogether offensive, ugly, unbearable, worthless, unsavable. If you don't believe me, ask those whom love you, and they'll love you with the truth. But with His goodness, God gave us the law. His standard for us to see as, as it's to act as a mirror to show us how desperately we need a Savior. James tells us in, in regard to the law, if you break one, you've broken all of them. It is, in regard to the law, all or nothing. And let me tell you that, that you and I, we are on the side of nothing. And just as Paul on the road to Damascus, he had his eyes open... By none other than Christ, we need the same. We all, with Paul, are trying to earn salvation in one way or another. But Christ must open our eyes that that these things are ultimately on the law side. These things that we find significance in, they are against us. That is what Paul is telling us here. It's not that he was doing okay and he found another system. It's not that I can just add Christ on. Paul isn't saying that it's Christ plus, or Christ is just another category in addition to in your life. Christ is the whole thing. Christ is the whole thing of your life in Paul's life. We can say with Paul that, can we say with Paul that I count all things that I have gained. All things that I've ever strived for or hard after in life, trying to find significance in them, are they all trash to us? What a brutal or hard text to read in the biggest gift-giving season holiday. You're looking at what to buy your loved ones uh, or put on your list, right? Trash, it's trash, it's garbage. No, No, that's not necessarily what Paul is saying here. He's not talking primarily about items, but that which he found significance in to earn righteousness. It might contain items, maybe, if you're finding significance in those. But in regard to righteousness, which is the subject that, that Paul is addressing here, all that I'm striving toward as earning it, if it's of me, if it's of you, it's worthless. And righteousness, we throw these terms around all the time just assuming that we get them, assuming that we understand them. Uh, but Paul, what he's describing here is it's a state of a person as they ought to be, the conditional, the condition acceptable to God, the doctrine concerning the way that a man may attain a state approved by God, that which God requires to enter eternal glory. We must have a testimony like this that I forsook and I am currently forsaking the world, myself, righteousness, and I stand alone on Christ and his work, his merit as my only hope. That must be our life cries a, as a Christian. And that with verses 7 and 11, uh, 7 through 11, these are not unique to Paul alone, but they must be the life of every believer. And what we're striving toward. Paul began this section by telling us about rejoicing. Telling us to rejoice. It's a command. and, And he gave us steps on how to do so. Be discerning as to what you expose your mind to. Guard against these thieves that would steal your joy. These false teachers. Now we're on to the positive side of how we can accomplish joy. We're going to utilize Dr. MacArthur's breakdown of this text. He gives us five gifts. If you're taking notes, these are five gifts that we all receive in Christ, starting in verse 8. Here in the text, Paul claims these as his, but we know that there's nothing here that's unique to his apostleship. So only, it's only unique to a, a Christian. The first gift in verse 8, Paul says, More than that, I count all things to be lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. The first gift that, that we come across is knowledge. And now the knowledge that Paul is describing here, it's not in the verb form, as it's nothing that Paul does. He addressed that. He addressed the intellectual aspect back in verses 1 through 3. So Paul is not speaking intellectual facts merely about Christ, although that's sort of a part of it, but, but he uses gnosis. I don't know if I pronounced that right, but either way. This is more of a personal involvement, a relationship that, that he's describing. Paul then goes on to say that it's a surpassing value. So this personal relationship, this knowledge of him, has a surpassing value that there is nothing greater. It is a joy to have lost all things, to count them as worthless, as dung, all of my life's work, to lose it all, best of the best to nothing. All things to all men. To know Christ as my Lord, an intimate love bond. It's a joy to be in jail, to be beaten for Christ, my master and friend who loves me. It's the same gnosis that Christ uses in John ten fourteen. Christ says, I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. It's not an intellectual but more mere relationship, but more of a relationship. John 17, 3, Christ says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This knowing is also used in the context of the intimate relations between a husband and a wife, such as Genesis 4, 1 and others tell us about. This first gift of salvation is knowledge. It's knowing Christ as Lord and how it holds greater worth than all else, than everything. That we love Him only because He first loved us while we were still sinners, He loved us. And that now, our relationship with Him is more valuable than all else. It's, everything else is garbage in comparison. I'm sure that a few other verses are coming to mind. Something about how we're to hate everything else in comparison to our love for Christ, because He first loved us. So the next gift is found in verse 9. The ne- next benefit is found in verse 9. It says, Paul says, And be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God upon faith. Everyone, again, everyone This next gift is righteousness. Everyone has a form of self-righteousness. Everybody does. Islam, they have their five pillars and the Quran. Catholics and the Jews, they have their traditions and their sacraments. And the moral man has their own twisted version of some form of a moral law. But they all fall short, and we know this, that they fall short of the law that that, uh, God gave us and Christian we must heed how we walk we must understand how we walk as we can just as easily fall into these forms of practice and start to find our significance in them and all these forms of self-righteousness will only add up to an eternal hell as the reward but the true righteousness righteousness which is only offered in the person and work of Christ in God himself Matthew uh, is one of the better descriptions of this Christ Himself puts it out well for us. Matthew five, seventeen through twenty says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I do not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, he sums it up, Paul sums it up really well in Romans, this righteousness in Romans ten four. He says, for Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness to everyone who believes. Because Christ fulfilled what is required and demanded what the law demanded, he is rightly able to be the perfect and blameless sacrifice and righteousness be found in him. We are all familiar with 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Christ lived perfectly in accordance with the law, fulfilled it, and died in accordance with the law, not as one who transgressed, but as a substitute. That's the heart of the gospel is substitution. We're familiar with that here at PBC. He took a Roman cross, taking and depleting, exhausting fully God's perfect wrath that was bound up and and stored for us for believers, paying our infinite debt, and He gave us His infinite reward through His righteousness. We wear His righteousness as believers. Now, righteousness is, is one doctrine that, one of the many doctrines that I think that we misunderstand too often. I know this because people are, they say that I'm saved by the cross. Well, don't crucify me, but... That's only half the time. That's only half true. While the work on the cross was necessary in regard to salvation, it had to be accomplished. But that only gets us to sinlessness or, or ground zero, moral neutrality. It's not good enough by itself to enter into the kingdom of God. And just in case you don't believe me, it comes straight from the mouth of Christ in Matthew 25, 46. Matthew 25, 46. 46. Christ says, "And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life." Matthew 5:20, he says this, "For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven." So we must have forgiveness. That's a fact. Romans 3 because Romans 3:23 says, "For all have sinned." We have broken the law of God. We need a cleared record of our past, present, and the future. Absolutely. But we must also acquire righteousness. We know clearly that our flesh can do nothing that pleases God. And the form of righteousness in which God requires cannot be obtained by us. It is impossible as as once the law is broken, once we've broken any law, a penalty is due. If there is a holy, just God, there must be a penalty if we've broken a law. There is no moral duct tape that we can do to fix it. No good works to repair what has been broken. As He will not overlook our sin, it is only found in God Himself. He fulfilled all righteousness, as we know from Matthew 3.15, and we see both of these concepts here. We see in Isaiah 53, 11, we see that God would pay for our penalty and then also offer us righteousness, earn us righteousness, give us righteousness. He says in Isaiah 53, 11, he says, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he bears, as he bear their iniquities. So, we must be forgiven, have a cleared record, and be declared righteous. That is through faith. This is all through faith in Christ and from God upon faith, as we see in verse 9. Faith alone is the means of justification and and righteousness. Through faith in Christ, we uh, know and we use the expression sola fide. We're familiar with that. Faith alone. Galatians 2 uh, sorry 2:16 says nevertheless knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law but through faith in Jesus Christ even we have believed even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified flesh cannot be justified by the law as we were born in sin. If we've broken the law because we sin and we're born in sin, then we can't be justified that which by that which we have broken. One of the more clearly stated text on this is found in Romans 3. You can turn there if you'd like. Romans 3, 21 through 28. Paul sums it up. Clearly and, and very well. Verse 21 says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. But by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So we must have faith not as grounds for our salvation, as then it would be a work adding to our salvation, but as means. And faith is belief in or trust, Confidence in God, fidelity to Him, or Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us that now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. There we go. Dr. MacArthur has a, an excellent quote to help us understand this. He says, The atonement that He effected is objective, a work accomplished independent of and apart from these who will eventually partake in its benefits, of its benefits. No cooperating work or response to grace adds to or energizes the ground of our salvation. To be sure, those who subjectively experience the benefits of the atonement must respond in repentance and faith, but such responses belong, such responses belong to the application of redemption, not its accomplishment and are themselves purchased by the perfect work that Christ has wrought. It is finished. We must move on to verse 10. Verse 10 in Philippians says, That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. The next gift or the next benefit is power. We receive power, or we must know power in His resurrection. Just as Paul sought after to know Christ, he adds also that he wants to know this power of His resurrection. I don't think that Paul here is referring to the event necessarily, although the resurrection alone is one of Christ's greatest displays of His power. That's a fact. That, that may also be a, a very small part of what Paul's saying here, but I think that Paul's more making reference toward the effect of it. What did the power of his resurrection accomplish? What does it mean, and, and what does it what did it accomplish? I think that that's what Paul wants to know. Well, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I apologize, there's a few tongue twisters in here, so if I get stumbled you know, stumble along, and I apologize. But uh, Paul just got done telling us about the gospel, and he spends a great deal on the resurrection. Paul's combating those that would say that they want to be a Christian, that they are Christians, and yet there is no resurrection of the dead. There's no resurrection. So starting in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12 and following, he says now if christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead but if there is no resurrection of the dead not even christ has been raised and if christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain your faith also is vain moreover we are even found to be false witnesses of god because we bore witness against god that he raised christ whom he did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised and if Christ has not been raised your faith is worthless you are still in your sins then those who are who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished if we have hoped in Christ in this life only we are of all men to be pitied most to be pitied but now Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep for since by a man came death by a man also came the resurrection of the dead for as in adam all die so also in christ all will be made alive but each to his own order christ the firstfruits after after that those who are christ at his coming he goes on to tell us about christ's coming And then also about the kingdom of God. The whole thing hinges on the resurrection. If there is no resurrection, he tells us there's no second coming. No resurrection, there's no kingdom of God. And as verse 22 tells us, if there's no resurrection, there's no life and life abundant. But isn't that what Christ promised us? To have life and have it abundantly? Well, then that would make Christ a liar if there's no resurrection is the resurrection the most important aspect here? I think that and I think Paul would also say that the birth, the life, the death and the resurrection are all crucial aspects that need to be preached for sure, but Paul does put a much emphasis on the resurrection. The power given to have life abundant in this life and in the next, it's only possible because of Christ raising himself. The power of lost souls being saved, it's only possible because of God's, the stamp of God's approval, namely the, the resurrection. The power to save us from our sin and from the wrath of God. We ought to be the most pitied, and God made a liar if there is no resurrection. And we too must seek to know this power just like Paul the power of the resurrection. The same power that rose Christ from the dead is currently working in, currently working for, and currently working with you as a believer to sanctify you, to grow you into Christ's likeness, into holy, into a holy person. And now we've got to move on again. It's, the next one is fellowship. We see again in verse 10 in Philippians Chapter 3, verse 10. First was the knowledge, the intimate relation with Christ that we have. Second is the righteousness that we receive, Christ's righteousness that we receive. Third is the benefit of the power found in, in Christ being raised on the third. Now it's fellowship, and specifically the fellowship of Christ and His sufferings. Paul's not saying that he wants to feel like a sinless Savior dying for others' sins or suffering for others' sins, as he knows that only Christ can do that. Paul's also not asking here for more persecution or beatings or, or bruises, as he knew that that was already coming, just as a, for standing on, the, on his name and, and what he promised us. And, and he knew that he wasn't greater than his master, and neither are we. But rather, Paul is more after Christ's attitude, his perspective when when the persecution did come. To receive these beatings, to receive these sufferings with joy during a trial, to control his tongue amidst them, I think that that's one of the greatest ways you can tell maturity is by how someone holds their tongue or controls their tongue. James Boyce, I apologize about the color scheme, but James Boyce has a a great quote for us to understand this, the fellowship of his sufferings, to know the fellowship of his sufferings. Boyce says, to understand this phrase, we must go back to chapter two of the letter where Paul speaks of Christ's obedience in death and holds it up as a pattern for all Christian conduct. He are... He argues that Jesus was so careful to obey His Father that He laid aside His outward mantle of glory and took to Himself human form and nature, enduring all the sufferings of this world. And that He even died as a man in obedience to His Father's will. The fellowship of Christ's sufferings is won at the price of such radical and total obedience. To be conformed more to the image of Christ in every way. That's what Paul is saying. That's Paul's message and that's his attitude. To know fellowship of his sufferings are going to conform Paul and us as we read on to, to his selfless sacrificial death as well. As the verse ends with. And the last benefit is, or the gift is Glory. Verse 11, verse 11, as we read, says, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. In order that, this is also how, or in another way, what Paul is saying as he's summing it up, he's saying all these things to rejoice in him, to grow in discernment, to stop chasing after my own righteousness, to count it all as garbage, Because it is, especially when it's compared to my relationship, Paul's relationship with him and his righteousness. And knowing his righteousness as mine, as ours, as as Paul's, being given faith, a saving faith, knowing and seeing what his resurrection has done and, and what it can do, dying to myself and putting Christ on continually. That all is how... I will attain, how Paul will attain to the resurrection from the dead. Attain is to arrive at or to come to. It usually has a a destination or a goal in mind. So in one sense, Paul is affirming and, and he's telling us that it's a guarantee that he will spend an eternity with Christ. That's a fact. That's a fact that Paul is affirming. But also in the Greek, these two resurrections found in verse 10 and and verse 11, they differ just a little bit. The one in verse 11, the resurrection in 11, contains ek, which translates in a form of stand up. So to the Greek mind, what Paul is saying is simultaneously, hey, I'm going to spend an eternity with Christ, absolutely. But also, he's saying that my goal is to look so much like Christ That I want to give the spiritually dead a preview of eternal life. In other words, I'm outstanding, I'm I'm standing up amongst the people on their backs or the spiritually dead, showing them Christ as well as I can, as well as humanly as well as humanly possible. Show off his holiness. So in conclusion, let that be our story, our life's cry as we spend these upcoming holidays with hard-to-love loved ones, we need to remember that, that Christ died for the most unlovable of them all, me and, and you, to show His goodness. And our cry that, that we want to be with Him so badly, looking forward to His coming again, that we give them a taste of Christ's goodness. That they see Christ and and how He is working on us. We are a a changed people. We are His changed people. And let us love them well. Let me leave you with this, to think on, to remember, one of my favorite verses. The context here is is that Paul just gave us the gospel. He reminded us of the resurrection. He encouraged us with the kingdom to come and and the new in incorruptible body that we receive and the rapture in that there is no more sting in death but victory in Christ is had and it's already accomplished with all of that in mind here's one of my favorites it's found in 1 Corinthians 15:58 therefore my beloved brothers be steadfast immovable always abounding in the work of the lord knowing that your labor is not in vain in the lord Amen. Let me pray. Father God, you are you are good. We thank you. We praise you for everything you bless us with. We pray for our the next hour that that your word is preached, that that our lives are transformed just to one degree of glory to another. That we have that we lead sanctified lives that we seek to be holy through your word, through your spirit. We praise you for that. We praise you for the work of the gospel, for Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.